All right, Mark chapter 2, and our, we're going to be in verse 13 today. And uh, this week, I, I was thinking back, um, if I were to say the date, September 11th, 2001, each of you immediately know what I'm referring to. And it's when our country was attacked um, and the towers in New York were brought to the ground. And um, I became a first responder in uh, 2003, so just two years after those attacks happened, I became a responder. And for a long time, um, I had never been to New York. It was my heart to get out and see uh, the memorial that has been placed at Ground Zero and to get to see the museum. And, and Jen and I, I was so overjoyed last year, right before I retired from my career as a firefighter and paramedic, the Lord was gracious. We got to travel to New York and on the weekend of September 11th, we got to visit Ground Zero. And if you've never been there, um, they, they've now erected a museum um, and Jen and I got tickets, and we went to this museum at Ground Zero, and I, I got to tell you, um, that was one of the most sober, um, somber, and incarnational experiences I've had. Um, we were there with hundreds of people walking the halls of this museum, looking at the twisted metal and wreckage that remains. Um, and even though there were hundreds of people, you could have heard a pin drop. Um, people didn't talk. If I'm honest, I'm glad Jen didn't talk to me because that was, as a first responder, that was tough to walk those halls and to see the wreckage and the debris. And, and in this museum, instead of paintings, paintings by Van Gogh uh, or others, what you saw were pictures of people who, who had perished. Um, and instead of sculptures, you saw the twisted metal of the beams from the towers that had fallen. And they played voice recordings of the people from those towers who had died, messages that they had left their loved ones on voicemails just moments before they died. They, left, they, they had 911 calls. There were audio recordings of people who were crying out for help. They played the radio traffic of first responders who, who had responded to that scene not knowing that that was their last day that they would ever respond to a call. And they had a burnt-out shell of a fire engine um, that had parked right in front of the towers. They had a police car and an ambulance that were just twisted wreckage. Um, and for me, it had been 21 years since the towers fell, but in that moment, I felt like I had experienced the terror and the horror with those people, and I felt a connection, um, almost like I had never felt that connection before, even though I watched it unfold on the news that morning. And when we get to our passage this morning, what we're going to find is the incarnational experience of Jesus. As Jesus, who is God, very God, stepped down from the peace of heaven and the glories and the sovereignty of eternity to step down into the wreckage and the brokenness and the pain and the suffering of real world life. Not so that he could stay far off, so that he could see with two eyes and hear with two ears 
and touch with ten fingers the hurting and the broken and the marginalized and the outcast. You see, Jesus came in this world so that he would not be far off, but so that he would draw near to the broken. And what we'll see in our passage this morning is that very thing. Jesus drawing near to the broken to experience with them the brokenness of life. So then that brokenness, he might also draw near to them as a savior. And this is the main thing we're going to see in our passage. This is our main idea. With scandalous grace... Jesus is drawing sinners to himself and driving them to those who are still far from him. That's what we're going to see in our passage. Jesus, with scandalous grace, is drawing near sinners to himself so that he can drive those to those who are still far from them. Let's read our passage together. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 2. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your abundant grace. Your grace that in this passage caused a scandal with the Pharisees. God, how scandalous it was that you would come to live eye to eye and face to face with sinners. God, I pray that as we study this passage, Lord, we today would experience a new measure of your unfailing, unchanging unrestrained, scandalous grace. I thank you for your mercy, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we dive into our passage this morning, I'm going to set it out for you. I'm going to lay the stage, and then we'll dive into it. So Jesus has just come uh, from healing the paralytic. That was his first controversy with the Pharisee of five controversies that Mark lays out. And the controversy that Jesus had in the healing of the paralytic, if you remember, uh, four men brought a paralytic man laying on a mat and there were crowds surrounding the house of Peter and Jesus is inside teaching and they bring this paralytic and they clear away the roof because there's no room to get to Jesus and they lower the paralytic and Jesus' first words are not, I'm healing you, but... If you remember, son, your sins are forgiven. And to the Pharisees, that upended their, their world. They're like, who in the world are you to forgive sins? Only God alone can forgive sins. And so it caused a scandal and a controversy with these Pharisees. And Jesus replied to them, even though they never spoke those words, Jesus knew the thoughts of their hearts. And he said, back to them, right, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say, pick up your mat and walk. And he healed the paralytic as evidence that if he could do what they thought was the hard thing, 
then it should be easy for him to do the easy thing. But in reality, what we discovered last week was that the hard thing for Jesus was to forgive the sins. You see, because God is just and justice must still be rendered. So God did the easy thing to show that he could in reality do the hard thing, which was forgive sins. And after that, the text tells us that he goes down to the sea and he continues doing what Jesus does, and that is to preach the gospel. And we would say, what gospel is he preaching? Mark told us in chapter 1, Jesus went about, his whole course was bent on preaching repentance. Turn from your ways and turn towards me. Repentance is a total change. It's a 180 in direction. And then chase God. And it was repent and believe. Repent and believe. And what should you believe that the gospel, uh, you should believe the gospel of the kingdom. And the reality of that kingdom is that it had drawn near in the person of Jesus Christ, the one person who could offer forgiveness of sins. So that's what Jesus went about preaching. And then he encounters this man. We, uh, Mark uh, writes, is uh, Levi. And Levi, we know him by a different name, and that is the name Matthew. Uh, So it wasn't uncommon for people to have two different names in those days. And so Mark refers to him by one name. But this is Matthew who Jesus now encounters. And uh, Matthew is the very same Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew in your Bibles. This is the calling of the man who would one day pen the very words of God for you and me, and we get to see the moment of his redemption right here, chronicled by Mark. So let's dive into it. And as Jesus encounters Levi, who is also Matthew, what we're going to see is this. The only prerequisite to following Jesus is that you must be a sinner. The only prerequisite is you got to be a sinner. That's it. You don't got to be good looking, which is lucky for me. You don't got to be smart, which is doubly lucky for me. You don't have to be anything but a sinner. And we see this calling. Look at verse 13 and 14 with me. Jesus finished healing the paralytic. He goes down to the sea to teach, and that's where we encounter him. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, coming back from the sea is the indication of that, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he rose, and he followed him. Give you an idea of how scandalous Jesus' grace was here. I'm going to take you guys back to another date in time. If I say 2008, most of you now think the financial collapse that put so many people out of business and wrecked their finances, and the Great Recession that lasted years and years and years. That people then had to climb out of debt and find a way to gain new jobs. Unemployment skyrocketed, right? There was a worldwide financial recession that year. But for some people, when they think 2008, they actually think about the name Bernie Madoff. You see, in 2008, in September, the financial collapse hit. 
And in December of that year, if you had been wrecked by the financial collapse, you may have missed the scandal surrounding this man named Bernie Madoff. And in December of 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested and he became known as the most hated man in America in 2008 for running a Ponzi scheme that uh, lost people billions of dollars. You see, Bernie Madoff, he, he was born in, I think, 19, well, whatever, a long time ago. In, in 1960, Bernie Madoff had started an investment firm, and he was trading in penny stocks. If you know penny stocks, you can literally trade a stock valued at a penny. And so he started a business trading penny stocks, and he became a financier, an investor in America. And he became so good at what he was doing that he, uh, he wound up running or uh, building up a multi-billion dollar business, getting people's money and investing it. You see, but the problem was, Bernie was not investing anybody's money. What he was doing is he was taking all of the money in, lining his own pockets, and giving zero return to people. And so in 2008, this most hated man caused the financial collapse of more than 37,000 people who had invested their money with him and thought. He, he took retirees who are now in their 70s and 80s who had handed over their entire nest egg that they had to live on and he had squandered it and stolen it. Bernie Madoff had taken the money of parents who had saved up for their kids to go to college and he had stolen the college fund from their kids and now these parents had no way to send their kids to school. And if that wasn't bad enough, you know how Bernie got his start? He got to start by reaching out to friends and relatives and family, people that thought they knew him and they trusted him and they turned over their millions to him and he stole it. Bernie Madoff swindled charities that lost millions and millions of dollars that would have gone to help those who were less fortunate, those who were disproportionately affected in social life and in the economic life. He robbed charities that were trying to do good work in marginalized communities. And it became the biggest Ponzi scheme the world had ever seen. $65 billion was stolen from retirees, from college kids, from friends who thought they knew him and he loved them, and from charities. And he became the most hated man of 2008. The man Jesus encounters here, Levi, is one of the most hated men of the year A.D. 30. Look at the description the text gives him. And as Jesus passed by, going from, he's going from the sea, likely back towards Galilee, on this main thoroughfare, this main passage, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting where? In the tax booth. Let me tell you about the guy that sits in the tax booth in AD 30. It's not like your local neighborhood-friendly IRS man. You see... The local friendly neighborhood IRS man, that dude is coming with a calculator to make sure you pay exactly what you owe. That dude, he wants the dollar for the government. Levi is not that tax man. See, so 
Back in those days, this is Roman-occupied territory. Rome cared only about two things. If they came in, they conquered your nation. They are now your rulers and your oppressors. They really only care about two things. They care about keeping the peace. You'd better not have uprisings. And they care about the flow of money back to Rome. If you pay the tax back to Rome, and if you have peace in your region, largely they will leave you alone. So what that means is when Rome came in and they conquered a territory, when Rome came in and began oppressing Israel, what they did is they wiped out the kings and the rulers and the leaders in Israel, and then they took an ethnic Jew, somebody who was Jewish, that promised to be allegiant to Rome, and they installed them as a new ruler in the area. So that now they knew they had somebody who was native to the area, but that promised to obey Rome, who would do the dirty work for them. And so they would install these puppet rulers, and these puppet rulers were tasked with keeping the peace and keeping the money flowing to Rome. Don't let uprisings happen. Don't let the money stop. That's all they cared about. So then these rulers would install tax collectors. The way they installed tax collectors is they put it out to bid. So they would say, hey, whoever is willing to pay the highest price to purchase the rights to collect taxes in this area, that will be the tax collector. You know who's willing to pay the highest price on collecting taxes? The guy who's willing to collect the most taxes. And so then they would put it out to bid, somebody would purchase the right, and now they would say, hey, you have to collect this much money from these people. I don't care how much more you collect, you can impose whatever tax you want, as long as it doesn't cause an uprising, and as long as you give us what you owe us. So then tax collectors were absolutely corrupt. And the tax collectors they raised up would have been ethnic Jews. And they were seen as cooperators with the oppressors. You you would tax me, your fellow countrymen, And you would swindle me so that you can cooperate with Rome? That's what was happening. It was Bernie swindling his brother's money and stealing his cousin's money so that he could align his own profits to the detriment and the poverty of whoever else around them had to go into poverty for it. And so Levi was a man who was probably very wealthy, but the way he made his money was by overvaluing the goods that people would bring along the trade route so that he could overcharge them on taxes. And not only that, but but, uh, he would use um, scales to weigh out money uh, that, man, it's not enough. You still need to put more back on that scale. So he would use unbalanced scales. You see, and when people would come through and he would levy a heavy tax debt against them, more than what they actually owed, if they couldn't pay, he would offer to lend them money. Like a good guy, I'll loan you the money to pay your taxes. But then he would charge an exorbitant interest rate that would force people into poverty because, man, the more you borrow that money at that high interest rate, the more you're going to have to borrow more money because you've got to pay back the interest. And then you're going to have to borrow more money to pay back that interest. And it's this never-ending cycle of poverty that he would have been inflicting on people that he would have considered family and friends Not that he had any friends. And if people couldn't pay still, he would hire enforcers that would use mob-like tactics of threats and intimidation and violence to force money out of people. So Levi 
was hated by every other ethnic Jew in the region of Galilee. He was the Bernie Sanders of his day, not the IRS tax man, but that was willing to swindle friends and family and rob the poor to line his pockets so he might be rich. And then Jesus. Then Jesus walks right up to the tax booth. Can you, can you imagine this? Jesus coming from the Sea of Galilee. You know where that means Matthew's tax booth is? Right along the road to the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has in tow who? Who's he bringing with him? Who are his disciples? Peter. What was Peter's occupation? Fisherman. And Andrew. What was Andrew's occupation? Fisherman. And James. And what was James's occupation? fisherman and his brother John and what was John's occupation and these people would rather spit on Matthew as they walked by but their messiah their rabbi walks up and boy they got a thing man he's walking up to he's walking up to Matthew he's got to have some words of condemnation for that guy how dare you oppress your people How dare you swindle us? Man, Jesus is going to get him. And Jesus walks right up. And can you imagine what's going on in their hearts and their mind when instead of condemnation, Jesus meets Levi the tax collector with, come and follow me. Can you imagine the shock? You would call him? You would call Matthew? Listen, tax collectors were so hated. They were so hated that they weren't even allowed to be witnesses in a court trial. If you got robbed and beaten up right in front of a tax collector and you needed a witness and that was the only guy around, you were out of luck. They were considered liars and cheats. They couldn't even testify in court on your behalf. And in fact, they were so hated that... You've read in the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness. We, we translate that today, you shall not lie, right? You've read that. That is the law that God wrote for the Israelites. You see, the rabbis redid it, and they said, you know what? You shouldn't lie, but you are allowed to lie to a tax collector with no consequence, and it's not a sin. They were disowned, disrespected, and hated. And Jesus walks up to this man who had been defrauding Peter, This man who had used muscle and intimidation to collect taxes from John and James. And he doesn't say, how dare you do this to my people? He walks up and he says, you, come and follow after me. And shock, shock sets in. Levi lacked any redeeming, meritorious quality that could ever have caused Jesus to want to call him. He merited zero favor from God. There was no redeeming quality. There was nothing that endeared him. And when Jesus said it, he didn't even try and bribe Jesus. Hey, can I follow you? I've been banned from temple worship. I'm not even allowed around the rabbis. People consider me unclean, just like a leper. Can I come and follow you? Look at all the money I have. I can buy my way in. Think of all you can do with your ministry, with my money, Jesus. There was none of that. Just Jesus. Leave everything and follow me. How could 
Jesus calls such a scumbag to follow him. It's easy to think that, right? But then how could Jesus call a scumbag like me to follow him? I had no redeeming quality. I had no merit within myself. I don't know about you. Maybe you think you were something when Jesus called you. I had nothing when God called me. With a simple, small voice of come, follow. That's what he did for Levi. Y'all, you and I, this is a call for you and me to stop with the idea that we've got to earn Christ's grace. Sometimes we think, right, it's easy to think, no, no, Brad, I came, I came to an evangelical church. We're Baptists. I know we don't, we don't earn grace. I know that. <laughs> Let me ask you this. How often do you condemn yourself? How often do you condemn yourself for feeling like you could be or should be more for Jesus? Man, I should have done better. Man, I know I should be doing this and I'm not doing it. Man, God, I know I should be going to church four times a week. And God, I know I should be talking to my, my, my coworker about you and I'm just failing. How often do we self-condemn? Do you do it or is it just me? And when we condemn ourselves, we act like Jesus' grace is based upon who I am instead of upon who he is. Self-condemnation is actually a root of self-righteousness. What will make me right is if I live more obedient to Jesus. But instead of thinking like a Pharisee, look how righteous I am, we flip the coin and we think, man, I'm condemned because look how bad I am. And in doing so, we presume on Jesus' grace that couldn't be available to somebody like me. There was nothing, nothing about Levi that warranted grace. Yeah. Intimate small church, I love it. Nothing. Here's the other thing. You and I need to prepare for the cost of following Jesus. When Matthew, look at the text, verses 13 and 14. As he passed by, he saw the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And what was his response? What was Levi's response? And he rose and followed him. When Matthew closed up the door to that tax booth, when he walked away and when he shut down, he knew he could never go back to that life again. There was immediate obedience. And his source of wealth was now dried up. Eventually, he would lose his livelihood because he had no way of making a profit. And it's not as though, it's not as though Levi could shut down his tax booth and walk into town, look at me, guys, I'm back, and all of a sudden, everybody loves him. He was still one of the most hated men of A.D. 30. And now he is going to be hated and poor instead of hated and rich. And it cost Matthew, everything to follow after Jesus. Oh, but, man, sometimes we come to faith in Christ 
in this day and age, and we think life is going to get better. And sometimes, can we be honest, life stays a little hard. Man, because that light bill still has to get paid. Man, and sometimes it seems like the paychecks just aren't enough. And sometimes there's still division in families. But man, God, I put my faith in you. Isn't it supposed to be better? Man, when you fix your eyes on the cross, it puts it all in perspective, and we, we experience a betterness in that. But this world is still filled with pain and suffering and difficulty. And somehow I think we get it in our minds that if I follow Jesus, all of a sudden everything's going to be all right. But you see, that's, that's a different gospel than the gospel Jesus preached. It costs to follow Jesus, and that's actually what he told us. He told his disciples, if they've hated me, they will hate you. He told his disciples, following after me means you pick up a cross. And we look at a cross today, and we think of it as a symbol of hope and grace and peace and comfort because we know the grace that was extended to us on the cross of Christ. But in those days, the cross was not a symbol of grace and hope. It was a symbol of pain and suffering and treacherousness. Pick up your cross and follow me. Traitors get put on a cross. Thieves get put on a cross. Murderers get put on a cross. Despicable human beings get put on the cross. But Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It's going to cost. And let me tell you, if you have been following a Jesus that has cost you nothing, you have not been following the Jesus of the Gospel of Mark. You've been following a Jesus that you've developed in your own head and heart. Because when you follow after the Jesus of the Gospel of Mark, it will cost you everything. But it's worth it. And we're called to follow and count the cost. We need to count the cost. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians. Paul, the up-and-coming Pharisee. Paul, the guy who was on the track to rule and lead. Paul, the guy who had all the friends. Paul, the guy whose word was command when he was a righteous Pharisee. And this is what he writes. Whatever gain I had in my former life where I had everything I now Count it as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. Levi knew that cost. And Levi knew that gain. The gain of eternity at the cost of the temporal. There's immense cost in following Jesus if we follow him like he has called us to follow. But man, there's immense gain. There is gain beyond this world. There is the gain of hope and there is the gain of eternity. There is the gain of peace with the God of all creation who created you and can restore you. Living a risk-free life is not the Christ-centered life. It's not it. To follow him is to follow into the fray of spiritual battle, which will spill over into physical, actual, material, social battle. That's following Jesus. But that's why you and I sing songs like, In Christ alone, my hope is found. Because he's my 
light and my strength and my song. He's my cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, and what heights of love and what depths of peace when fears are stilled and my strivings cease because he's my comforter, my all in all. And it's here in the love, in the redeeming grace, and in the peace of Christ that I stand. We sing a song about fierce storms because fierce storms are the reality for the follower of Jesus. But so is fierce love from a Savior who redeems you and me to himself. So what do you need to follow after Jesus? You just got to be a sinner. And when he stands forward and you offer up your sin as the only thing you can bring, he will offer out grace in return. That's all it takes to follow after Jesus. Next thing we see in our passage is this. The deeper you're drawn into Jesus, the more you should be driven to those who are far from him. The deeper that you are drawn into Jesus, the more you should be driven to those who are far from him. Look back at the text in verse 15. And Jesus, now having called Levi to himself, now he shows up at Levi's house. Verse 15 says this, And he reclined at table in his, Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners, underline that word sinners if you are somebody who likes to underline, they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Underline this, For there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus now, having called Levi, and Levi immediately responding, and Levi immediately receiving redemption as Christ looked at him and knew the work of the Holy Spirit, and he says, follow me, and the Spirit came alive in Levi, and he experiences this repentance and this grace from Jesus. Now Levi's excited, and he brings Jesus back to his house, and he throws a banquet in Jesus' honor. He's excited. The dead have been raised, right? The, the lost have been found. I have been found by my Savior. I who have been held so far off from God have now been drawn near in grace. And he's excited and he throws this banquet. And who's he invite? He ain't inviting the Pharisees. You know why? The Pharisees hated the tax collectors. He's not inviting the good upstanding citizens of the Jewish community. Do you know why? Because they hate him. So who's he invite? The only people left that'll talk to him, tax collectors. And then we see in the passage, the sinners are following Jesus. Back to the passage. And as he reclined at table, this is verse 15, in his house, many tax collectors, they came with Levi, and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Who was it who was following Jesus? It was these sinners that were following Jesus, the holy man, had sinners following? Oh, what? Why were they following Jesus? Well, first we got to get at the root of what the text means when it says sinners. 
when you and I think of people, you got to think about this, right? These people, they don't get an identity in Scripture. They're only referred to as sinners. And we might think, how bad do you have to be? How woeful, how nefarious do you have to be that your name doesn't get brought up? It's not that, hey, you're the construction guy who sometimes gets a little drunk. You're just, you're a sinner, That's the only identifying characteristic you get in Scripture. Like, how bad do you have to be? But here's the reality. This word sinners. This word sinners. These were everyday people who were kept at arm's length from being able to go to the temple and worship and draw near to the religious elites of their day. They were everyday people like you and I. You see, the Pharisees would have identified them as sinners because these are people who, man, they are scraping by just to eat. And so sometimes they got to work on Sabbath. But you know what? It's a violation of the law. Get out of the temple, you despicable Sabbath-violating sinner is what they would have heard from the Pharisee. Man, sometimes they had to trade with Gentiles because you know what? I didn't make any money today and the only person willing to buy my goods is a Roman. Man, I just got to make ends meet. Man, you did a transaction with a Gentile? You're unclean. Get out of my temple, you sinner. And so the religious elites kept these sinners at arm's length so that they would not be able to draw near in grace to Jesus, to the Lord. Couldn't go to temple. They were considered unclean. They were considered the refuse just because they were trying to make ends meet. They're everyday people like you and me. But the Pharisees saw them as the worst of the worst. So why were they following Jesus? Why were these these many following Jesus? Because of the fact that they had been told they were not allowed to draw near to the grace of God. And finally, they found a rabbi, a man of God, who said, I will not hold you far off, but I will draw you near. You can come to God. Come to me. And in Jesus, they found hope. Why would sinners follow after Jesus? Because all of the other religious leaders held them off. And they just needed to draw near. For the first time they could. And notice what Jesus does with them here. Notice what he does. As he reclined at table in Levi's house. Table fellowship, to sit around a table and enjoy a meal with another person, was considered some of the most intimate fellowship of the day. That hasn't changed in about 2,000 years. You want to lead somebody to Jesus, lead them to your table. Fill their tummy and you can fill their soul. I promise you that. We're just wired that way. Table fellowship was intimate. Like the scandal with the Pharisees was not that Jesus engaged and began teaching sinners. A Pharisee would tell you he's got something to teach you, that's for sure. He would tell you how unrighteous you are and how righteous he is. He would tell you about the 600 laws that you're breaking that you should be keeping. A Pharisee would would give you a word. It wasn't that Jesus was just teaching these people, but he actually sat down and reclined at table as though these sinners were his friends. 
Friends? What would a holy man want with being friends with sinners? How disgusting, how reprobate, how horrible. And it disgusted these Pharisees. You would dine with them? You see, but Jesus didn't just pursue a passing encounter with sinners. Jesus pursued fellowship with sinners. It's the very reason he came to this earth to do ministry. The incarnation of Jesus, the stepping down of holy, eternal God from his sovereign throne, totally separated from the sin and destruction of this world, stepping down into his creation, not so that he could still stand far off and shout teaching from a distance, but so that he could draw near enough to smell you and draw near enough to lay hands on you and draw near enough to embrace you and hug you and fellowship. That's incarnational ministry, to be present life on life with the broken and the lost and the outcast and the marginalized and, yes, even the sinners. And that's the ministry Christ came to do. And Scripture charges you and I, and again in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count that equality with God as a thing to hold on to and cling fast to, but instead he emptied himself to step down into creation so that he could do table fellowship with sinners. Scripture tells us you and I are to put on that same mind in Jesus Holy separation was never the plan. Messy life on life mercy was the plan. Jesus demonstrated it for us. Scripture calls us to it. And the Pharisees despised it. You see, because look what they do. They weren't even brave enough to go to Jesus. They weren't even brave enough to take their complaint to him. You remember with the paralytic, they wouldn't even voice their words. They thought their condemnations against Jesus, but Jesus knew their hearts. Here they at least bring it to voice, but they're still not brave enough to bring it to Jesus. So they start griping at his disciples instead. What do they say? Why does he eat with such scum? I'm paraphrasing. Tax collectors and sinners. How can he do it? See, the Pharisees, while Jesus' ministry was one of incarnation, life-on-life relationship with those who were far from God, the Pharisees' ministry was one of indoctrination. Let me teach people how to be righteous, and when they're righteous, then they can join. Let me teach people how to keep the law. Once they show they know how to keep the law, then they can be counted among the ranks. But we must separate ourselves from the ungodly. The very word Pharisee, do you know what it means? Separated ones. They were so 
proud of their religious holiness that they had to be separated and they gave themselves the title, we are the separated ones because we're holy before God. So we separate from the ungodly. So for the separated ones to do fellowship with the ones you should separate from was to be counted as a sinner themselves. Y'all, our own self-righteousness will always oppose the true righteousness of Jesus. Always. When we find in ourselves all the reasons that I should get to stand before God, that will stand in opposition of the true righteousness that is found in Jesus. And not only that, but it will oppose his grace. What need do I have of Jesus' grace if I find the righteousness within me? Let me stay separate, let me stay holy, and then let me stay with God. That was the attitude of the Pharisees. Yeah. If we're honest... Jesus' radical way of life wasn't just a condemnation of the Pharisees. It's a condemnation even of the church today in many places. We like to gather together in our four walls to worship God, and then, you know what, we'll do that on Sunday morning, and then let me fill my Wednesday night with a Bible study, and then let me fill my Tuesday morning with a prayer meeting, and let me, let me do discipleship lunches with so-and-so, and before we know it, all the people that we meet with are simply other people who already know the Lord, and you know who's been excluded from that regiment and routine? Sinners. And not that I think we do so with malicious intent, but we alienate those who are far from God by the longer we know Jesus, simply doing life with other people who know Jesus. And so Jesus' words right here. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That was a just condemnation of the Pharisees who thought themselves righteous and not in need of grace. And it's a just condemnation of the church today. Anytime for the benefit of the holy separation, we exclude sinners from our table fellowship. And y'all, sometimes I'm guilty of it too. I'm not saying Bible studies are bad. Hear that. I'm not saying prayer gatherings are bad. I'm not saying don't come on Sunday morning. These things are good and right and just and true. This is what we should be doing. But if we do it to the exclusion of ever getting face to face with people who are far from God, then we've lost the heart of Christ. These things are good, but they cannot exclude the heart of Jesus. Because with scandalous grace, Jesus is drawing near sinners to himself like you and me so that we won't just be our holy, pharisaical huddle, but so that we who are drawn near to Jesus might be driven out to go gather in those who are still far from him. So let me ask, who do you invite to table fellowship? Do you still have people in your life that are sinners? 
Do you still have people in your life that are far from God? And I'm not just saying people who you can shout at as you pass their driveway on your family walk, but people who you would actually do life on life with that are far from him and need to know someone who can point them and draw them near. Y'all, because Jesus called us not to radical segregation, but to life-on-life connection. That's what he's called us to. That's what we see here. And that's what Jesus' charge is. I came not to call the righteous. That might be better translated. I came not to call people who think they are righteous, but to people who know that they're sinners. That's who he's after. It was Jesus' scandalous grace that reached out to you and drew you near. The day you placed your faith in Christ and surrendered to him, it was his scandalous grace that called him to yourself. And he did that through somebody in your life. Who was it that shared the gospel with you, that stepped into life with a sinner, not just to do a drive-by tract-throwing, but to engage you in life and point you to the grace of Christ. We need more people like those who reached us. May we be those people. May we be that church. And can each of us be filled with the scandalous grace of Christ for the lost? That be our heart. Let's pray.